Welcome to the Startup Microdose podcast with me, Ed Stevens, and my able co-host, Oliver Jones. This conversation is with Stephen Welton. Stephen is the founder and CEO of the Business Growth Fund. Under his management, the BGF has invested over $2 billion into growth businesses in the UK and Ireland, making it the largest fund of its kind in the world. Stephen talks us through the founding story, which involved raising $2 billion from some of the biggest banks in the aftermath of the financial crisis. He also provides an insightful and optimistic take on the UK's business outlook for the future, whatever happens in whatever Brexit takes place. It's a fascinating and articulate account of the state of the industry. So without further ado, we bring you Stephen Welton. Okay, good afternoon, everyone. We're joined today by Stephen Wilson, CEO of the BGF, or Business Growth Fund, which I think I'm right in saying has invested around 2 billion into 300 startups since 2011. Very good, yep. Now over 2 billion and uh, and growing. We make more than an investment a week, so uh, I'm now looking forward to 3 billion. Wow, I think I think I read somewhere that you're actually the most prolific fund in the world. Yeah, it sounds Based very, on that metric. Yeah, it sounds very grand. Um, but most investors either have really small pots of money and therefore they're only going to make one or two investments or you've got really big pots of money um, and they're looking sort of for whales out there in terms, again, of giant buyouts. Mm-hmm. We were designed to make lots of investments in a broad range of companies, crucially right across the UK. So making more than 50 investments a year has now put us into a completely different league, partly because we're trying to do something different Mm -hmm. to everybody else. Cool. Um, We'll we'll dig into that a little bit more in a moment. But before, to give our listeners some context, it'd be good to get a handle on on your background and what your story was and then how you ended up working or founding uh, BGF. Um, Perhaps I'm a little bit unusual to some founders. I'm at the other end of the spectrum to uh, many of the people you would normally speak to. What do you mean by that? The successful uh, end. <laughs> <laughs> Been long trying to, uh, to sort this out. Uh, I've got quite a conventional background in terms of where I started. So I'm a barrister, so I'm not an accountant. I'm not an investment banker. Uh, I decided to do something more commercial, which is why I joined an American bank. And then I worked for them both here and in the U.S., and I actually got a chance to work in uh, in Silicon Valley before it really was Silicon Valley. So before it became the sort of uh, uber cool place to be. But it did give me an early exposure to growth companies. And I thought that was quite interesting. So my career has been a sort of path navigating towards helping to fund and um, uh, run, I guess, earlier stage and growing companies. And that's been done primarily in the private equity industry, which is hugely successful on a global basis. I think the best performing asset class in terms of alternatives. Um, And it's sort of poor relation has often been the venture capital industry with some notable exceptions. Some of the best funds in the world are venture capital funds. And in terms of how did I get here, um, I've always been curious. I think that's a good trait in any entrepreneur, um, trying to just understand how other people run businesses and what opportunities that presents that curiosity led me to actually go and run a business so most investors are very good at telling other people what to do Mm -hmm. Um, they're a little less able perhaps to go and do it themselves because it's harder and it's less predictable so i ran a um, a television uh, travel and holiday business back in the 
early part of the uh, of the 2000s, which was fascinating on a number of um, criteria. There is an assumption when you run a business that you know what you're doing. That's not always true, uh, but it's reassuring if people think that. And it's also very humbling to see in any company what really makes a good company are the people and how you motivate people, uh, which in the city, I think, a lot of people have lost sight of. It's not just about money and rewards. It's about passion and motivation and feeling that you're on a, on a journey. That's something you will have heard from a lot of founders. I think that sort of resonates. So um, I ran that business, which I then sold to Expedia. Uh, I went back to my day job as it was. Uh, I joined JP Morgan uh, on the private equity side. I was quite happily minding my own business until somebody came up with the daft idea of setting up a brand new company to support small companies in very short order. So the sort of pitch to me was, why don't you try and set up 3i in three months? And that is obviously completely ridiculous, but it was sufficiently um, tempting to actually go and have a discussion with somebody and that expression that curiosity kills the cat. Well, well I'm curious and I'm still alive, but it, was, uh, it really was a fantastic opportunity to take all of my experience gained over you know, two or three decades in terms of working with private companies, working with buyouts, um, seeing early stage businesses, and then thinking, could I apply that experience to a new business, which is trying to do something that's really worthwhile? Um, and that's where it all began. So who was it who, who approached you? Uh, there were four banks. Again, not the obvious source of capital for investment. Um, uh, this was one of the main board directors of HSBC. They were keen to set up a new investment company. And the conversation was a slightly unusual conversation because we started talking about economic history. This is not normally what you do in an interview. But we hit it off in terms of having a sense of the opportunity that was ahead of us. And the banks were keen, and this is after the financial crash, to do something really tangible to support small companies in Britain, uh, not just rhetoric and sound bites. And they were prepared to put their money uh, where their mouth was in terms of a huge commitment to an idea, and an idea which had no people. So this is definitely you know, startup investing mm -hmm. on a grand scale. And I was really impressed and attracted to the ambition, recognizing that it may fall flat on its face to start with, but the ambition was, was big, it was bold, and it had some resonance in history, which is where the conversation about economic history came in, because 3i was founded after the Second World War, very different circumstances, but from an idea. So um, I do believe in any business and in any investing, you look for precedence and you look for what can make something succeed. So. It was a combination of, I thought it was a good time to be doing this, I thought it was a worthwhile thing to be doing, and I believed it could work. Mm -hmm. And presumably, they were offering money on the table from, from that, from the get-go. Yeah, anybody who's ever raised money knows that there are strings attached. Uh, they were offering a lot of capital, um, and therefore there were strings attached, but the, I think it was the size of their ambition that really appealed to me. So the discussions were, we will provide you with up to two and a half billion. Now that is... That is a big sum of money for a startup. <clears throat> Nobody in their right mind is actually going to give you two and a half billion in a bank account. But it wasn't just rhetoric. They actually meant um, what they said. So if you can develop a really credible business, you have a funding runway here of up to two and a half billion. And that was the thing that really grabbed me in terms of I would be prepared to take this risk of setting up this business because if we get the execution right, the capital will be there. What... Um signs of delivery were they looking for because obviously it takes a long time for a fund to mature and show the returns that you build it on 
but so when, when they say get it built your deliverables within that first three to six month period what did you need to show them to start unlocking the, the capital that they were willing to part with uh, that's a great question um i'm a big believer in trying to set realistic expectations uh, we obviously fund a lot of um uh, growing businesses early stage businesses and there's there is an inevitable temptation to promise the earth, especially when you're sitting in front of somebody who you want to invest in your business. And you've got to be careful that's not a Pyrrhic victory. You actually raise the capital, but you set such unrealistic expectations that it's going to end unless there's a lot of good fortune with a, uh, with a series of disappointed parties. So going back to what we were trying to do, I mean, as an individual with potentially access to a large pool of capital, you think, well, that's great. Most startups haven't got the capital, but they've got the team and an idea. So the objectives, uh, really for 2011, which was our first year, is actually turn this idea into something that's credible. Hmm. And what would credibility be driven by? It wouldn't be driven by a flurry of investments. And if you just made a flurry of investments, you're probably going to be backing the wrong things. What would give it credibility is the team. So can you go and hire some people? Um, and that was the first priority. So the very first person I hired was a headhunter. I thought, well, I've got the capital, and I need to get the people. I need to get somebody who really knows where all the investors are in this industry, who may be tempted with the idea of joining a startup. And in the context of our shareholders, it, it very much was, first thing is to hire a team. Second thing is to start articulating a very simple message. They get some cut through in terms of, not so much the media, but in terms of the business community and the entrepreneurs who want to speak to. So judge us by progress in terms of hiring people and in terms of developing a message. Those are really soft targets in a way because they're not financial, but they're very hard targets because you've got to find the people mm. and you've got to find a willing audience in terms of entrepreneurs. And by the time we got to the end of that first year, we had um, over 30 people and we'd made three investments. And my sense was that there was an element of goodwill towards us that people were prepared to give us the benefit of the doubt. It was almost, well, are you just like everybody else? Well, you sound a bit different, so maybe you are different. And they are simple things to build on. And it meant that at the end of that sort of first year, our shareholders and our board were saying, okay, well, you are starting to make progress. You clearly need to start making some investments as well, but the building blocks are in place. What was the purpose or mission statement that, you, that you've used to get people to bandy around the cause? If you look at the the private equity industry and the venture capital industry, they all have one trait that's uh, the same, which is they're investing from limited life funds. So we've created a sort of hamster wheel. You get on the hamster wheel to raise money, you then invest it as quickly as possible, you get it back as quickly as possible with a positive return, you go and raise some more. And if you're successful, that's very, you know, that clearly has worked in the, uh, in the private equity industry. The flaw in that is that you spend a lot of time fundraising. You also spend a lot of time realizing investments rather than investing for the long term. So for us, the critical difference was that we needed permanent capital. There was no point having sort of money burning a hole in our pockets because that would drive the wrong investment behavior. It would drive a very different culture in terms of the people we hired. And it wouldn't be very convincing to entrepreneurs because we only ever take a minority stake and we want to be a long-term investor with these businesses. So the structure of BGF was the key thing to get right at the outset and that has given us the ability to plan and say to companies we're not going to take you over so we're not a private equity firm and that's, that's not a criticism of private equity it's a difference so we're not a majority investor 
we're equally not a venture capital investor just looking for a unicorn or a needle in a haystack. Hmm. So if you don't meet those criteria, you'll sort of be cast on the uh, on the sort of reject pile pretty hmm. quickly. We are long term, so we will stick with you for that journey. And we know, and this history has borne this out, very few, if any, companies hit their plans. That's not because they can't hit their plans, it's because they are trying to predict the future. And the reason that works for us as a business proposition is that we anticipate that and we have the ability and the willingness to be there for the long term. Mm -hmm. And entrepreneurs listening will be dying to know exactly what sort of companies you look at and and where you source them from. Um, In terms of where we source them from, when we started, we didn't have any um, we didn't have any companies to talk to yeah. so we then found one or two we made a couple of investments and we got them to stand up and talk to people that they knew <laughs> so that's a, that's a very old-fashioned way I can't imagine it was to, hard to court people with 2.5 billion <laughs> um, uh, being pledged <laughs> it's <laughs> interesting it's hard to court the right people right if I remember going to one dinner and this lady said, you sound a bit like Father Christmas. <laughs> and we all know there are some limitations of Father Christmas. So we're not running a charity. So if, if, mm. you, if you give the impression that this is a grant-giving body, then you'd have a queue and you could give the money away very rapidly. So we're trying to make investments. If you look at the, the venture capital industry, that is a bit of a sort of, um, I don't know, it's almost like a f- the film business or the Hollywood business. You want to get the best possible investor to invest in your company because it endorses you. So I think for a lot of entrepreneurs, they want the ideal combination of the money on the best possible terms, so no dilution with the best possible investor on the planet who's going to do everything with their business. And of course, you can't have all of those elements. So for us, it's generating the right type of demand. And we are we will not make the same IRRs as a venture capital firm or a private equity firm because we invest for longer. Mm. That's not because our investment strategy is worse than theirs, it's different. So we are trying to look for longer term opportunities. And we're looking for businesses fundamentally, and we always start with this where we feel aligned with the management team. And that, that is, again, very simple. And I think you can overcomplicate investments. So what motivates the people we're backing? Do we believe them? Do they see a benefit to us? Or are we just a sort of commodity in their, their sort of process, as it were? And if you can build that partnership, you then move on to well, what is the business idea? Why do we think it's going to succeed? How deep is the team? What are the challenges they're going to face? So it's almost trying to sort of put the normal fundraising cycle of you tell me a story I don't really believe and I tell you something that you clearly don't really believe and there's a bit of a dance that goes on (laughs) to, well, this is the idea I've got behind my business. How would it work? And is BGF going to be a suitable partner for you? And for many companies, we're not the right partner. Clearly, the fact that we are now such a large-scale investor means we are the right partner for many businesses. So what stage are they at then? They, when we started, um, again, to keep the proposition really simple, we said you've got to be turning over at least $5 million, um, up probably to 100 But in reality, most businesses were between 5 and $25 million. So that's so, not a startup. So, they, yeah, so yeah. they've clearly got something there. Uh, ideally profitable, but many businesses have not got to profit at that stage. And why did we cast the net in that way? Because as a brand new business going to market, you've got to have something that's really simple. If we said, we'll look at absolutely everything from everybody in all parts of the UK, we would have just been swamped. And we wouldn't have had any ability to actually sort of uh, carefully build up our business. So we've done that. And that's, if you want, is old fashioned development capital, growth capital. Now that that is there is a big need for that in the UK, and we are um, you know we're absolutely focused on that and addressing that. 
We've now built scale as an organization. We have 14 officers, we've got 180 odd people. So we're the largest investor, not just in terms of uh, volume of activity, but in terms of resources. And what we have done over the course of the last few years is to say, well, now with this infrastructure, with the capabilities that we've got, what else could we be doing to start filling a broader element of that investment landscape? And that has led us to start looking at earlier stage more seriously than we did in the past. So that will take us into the arena, not of complete startups, but businesses that are not turning over 5 million, that are probably loss making, but have a faster growth trajectory. And a good example of that in the last sort of two years is life sciences. Very long term, very hard to predict what's going to happen in that sector. But we've got um, a group of people who are focused on that. And we are seeing lots of opportunities. And even there, rather than saying life sciences right across the board, we're saying, well, let's pick a, um, a subsector to start with. So it's not new drug discovery. It may be more diagnostic related. And what I hope we can do in the long term is to develop what is a really broad investment platform to do more in the earlier stage arena at one end. We also invest on the unquoted markets in AIM at the sort of micro cap end mm. there. So the key for us is to build a large diversified portfolio of high growth companies, growth companies, different stages. And then it becomes, it becomes very sort of inclusive. And that is part of our culture. So rather than, I think the mainstream private equity and venture capital firms, by definition would say they're very exclusive. We're only going to back one in a thousand or whatever it is. I and mean, we're trying to back more companies. And that is very much part of our DNA. So with those first transactions, some feedback I've got from private equity firms is it, at a certain level, it can get very competitive to actually get, you know, get hold of the deal. So did you find a lot of competition around the transactions you were initially looking at to try and, try and complete on? Um, uh, not really. No. And I'll tell you why. Because we're offering something that's different. If somebody wanted to sell their company, lots of competition, and that's a private equity deal. So we don't do that. So we don't do um, takeovers. Somebody in the early days was looking at a very high growth company, and they could fund it with the venture capital industry, they would do that. So what we were looking at, which is why we were set up, is there a big demand for growth capital from a broad range of companies who don't want to sell? That, that is probably the key thing. Right. And that is where we've really built our business. So we are very comfortable with being a minority investor. So we're not sitting there thinking, if only we owned this company, just think what we could do. And that's important to convince entrepreneurs and owners of businesses and family companies, you are genuinely a partner rather than a sort of takeover in disguise. Well, because you can get into all kinds of exotic um, behaviors, can't you? I mean, yeah. some people do asset stripping, uh, they try and get the 51% stake by downrounding the company. So. Um, I guess it is really important to know who you're getting into a, into a deal with. Yeah, I, I completely agree. I mean, when we talk to when we talk to businesses, and it was a very hard at the beginning because we couldn't actually substantiate this. But today, you say to companies, go and talk to people we backed. Yeah, um, because they will give you their assessment. They give you an honest assessment. And now we back so many companies, and not every businesses, uh, as I said blown the lights out. Some of them have got there in different ways. Some of them have found it pretty difficult. I would hope that for all the companies that we've backed, uh, at least we are a consistent and a supportive investor. And that doesn't mean, again, that we're sort of uh, very benign and we have no interest in what these companies are doing and we're not trying to make a return. We are. But the mindset is much more, I think it's, it's an attempt to be much more realistic and honest. We, we know that all these founders are very aspirational and they want to build great businesses and we share that. But then there is a heavy dose of realism. Mm. Okay, well, what happens? 
what is your plan B? And plan B for too many companies is another round. Well, that isn't actually a plan B. There's another round and it will be dilutive. So going back to your question to me about what did our board and shareholders want at the beginning, we put up some deliverables there. I was pretty confident we could deliver and that builds credibility. So I think for a lot of companies raising money, they, they're perhaps, because they don't do it all the time, a little bit naive in terms of what an investor is actually looking for. So I think when we invest now, we make sure that companies go and talk to others. And how will you play alongside other vested interests in that company? So if somebody came to um, BGF, gets what I call a sort of reasonably patient capital on board, mm -hmm. but then they have aspirations to suddenly grow it and accelerate it and start you know, dealing with VCs or potentially more aggressive PE firms. How do you sort of manage that that conflict? Or maybe it's not a conflict at all when you're happy for them to, to grow and sell. But if those aspirations are a little bit more um, aggressive and maybe short-sighted? Uh, I think it's, that's a very good question. You start, before you even invest, you try to understand what they are trying to do. So as we now do invest in earlier stage companies, by definition, they need to raise more capital. Mm. And that, that's just the nature of that um, type of industry. So you're trying to set realistic milestones for what will you need to do in order to be able to raise the next round of capital. So I would like to think that we are an experienced, common sense um, seat around that board table. Um, and we don't have, I mean, we're under this event, we don't have to make investments. And the fact that we make a lot of investments is because we see a lot of interesting companies to to back rather than we have to make investments because we've got to go and raise more capital. So I think you try to fit the investment to the strategy of the company. Hmm. And if, a, if it's a very fast growing company, speed to market's important, there's a lot of other capital around doing similar things, then obviously that needs to be reflected in the capital structure and the time frame. Uh, if I give you a good example of a business that um, we backed early on when we started doing earlier stage, which is Gusto, uh, Gusto is doing incredibly well. Now, they have continued to raise capital because they're building market share, they're building a really strong brand. And in that industry, there's probably going to be only one, maybe two uh, companies that survive because the cost of acquisition is really expensive and you need scale to do that. So their business model has required fast acceleration and building a team and you know, the CEO has done a great job of that. There are other businesses that we back that are not on such a fast growth trajectory. So they need a different type of capital structure. Maybe they can use some debt as well. And once we've invested and we work with the management teams on board governance and bringing in outside directors, it is suitable in some situations to raise some conventional bank debt. Mm. That's obviously something we understand. Our shareholders are banks. Um, so we have a very good relationship with banks. They take quite a lot of comfort if BGF is on the share register. So that's another source of capital. And then if you move into uh, the sort of inorganic growth, so acquisitions, many of the companies we back, they've got to a certain stage and then they want to make acquisitions. It's, again, it's a different type of um, financing. So we have the ability here to really say what works in this particular situation rather than saying we have a cookie cutter approach here. We have to do this, we have to do it this way and we've got to do it by that time. You've, you've deployed more capital each year, I think I'm right in saying. Yeah. And how often do you have to raise with that and is it from the same bank partners or have you have you added additional ones uh we're very fortunate that we haven't had to raise at all so what we've had to do is obviously draw down the capital that was committed so the two and a half billion 
uh, prospect, going back to 2011, was a prospect. We've uh, now invested over two billion, so we've drawn down over two mm -hmm. billion. The beauty of our model is every time we make a realization, it goes back onto our balance sheet. So our balance sheet today is, is closer to sort of 1.5, 1.6 billion wow. in terms of realizations that have come back onto our balance sheet. So that we're in a very privileged position because we have a balance sheet. Interesting question for us is if our pace of investment increases, if we broaden our range of activities, if the whole periods go up because we go into a slower economy, what would happen if we needed more capital? Where would we go for more capital? And that is a really interesting um, discussion which goes beyond a BGF. If you look at it from a UK standpoint, how are we going to raise more capital in the UK? Um, so how would BGF do that? And I think there are some very interesting opportunities that are opening up now in terms of big pools of capital that do not support growth companies in the UK. And that would be pension funds, insurance companies, mainstream investors. And for us, that is actually a very big prize. We would clearly potentially be a beneficiary um, directly as BGF, but I think the prize is much bigger than just us. And you've talked a bit about this this British mega fund. Is that is that kind of what yeah. you're alluding to there? If you look at if you look around the world, many countries have a sovereign wealth fund, but Britain doesn't, mm. uh, which is a shame. And we could have had a sovereign wealth fund. You go back to the 1970s when North Sea oil was discovered, and it's obviously a huge natural resource. Many of the um, sovereign wealth funds around the world are based on commodities. Uh, we invested that or spent it, depending on your point of view. Um, the <laughs> the uh, <laughs> The Norwegians um, <laughs> invested it. So if you look at Norge, which is the Norwegian Sovereign Wealth Bank, they're nearly a trillion dollars in assets. Norway has the highest per capita GDP in the world. It's only 5 million um, people, but that shows you the power of a long-term investment strategy. So we unfortunately can't rediscover North Sea oil, and maybe there'll be some <laughs> other commodity that we discover. But the alternative, I think, for the UK uh, is to look, perhaps look at places like Canada and Australia and what's happening in the savings industry. And both of those countries have built very, very significant uh, superannuation pension funds, which sounds a bit dull, but they are very sizable. And they are almost a proxy for the financial clout of a sovereign wealth fund. And that is something that could happen in Britain. And the reason it will happen or could happen in Britain is that we have moved away from old-fashioned final salary pension schemes, which are fantastic if you are in them, to a world in which the next generation of um, workers and employees are going to have to save for themselves because the government is not going to be there in the scale that people will need as we live longer and the population grows. So the government a few years ago did something that sounds very uh, unexciting, which is called auto-enrollment. Mm. Um, there are a few interesting software companies, including one of the first companies we backed, actually, that was, in, uh, that was in that space. And at its simplest, it just means every employee in the country is automatically enrolled in a pension scheme. And the view was that most people would opt out. The reality is most people haven't opted out, which is a good thing, and are saving for their future. I think the average age of a member in these defined contribution schemes is 21, wow. which means they're going to be saving for 50 years. Uh, compound interest being what it is, you save 10 pounds a month for 50 years, it will become a very big number. Um, the latest estimates are that the defined contribution industry will be worth a trillion pounds by 2025, so that's not way off in the future. The opportunity for us is to actually look at that savings pot, which is growing, and invest it wisely. That could be if it's deployed in the right areas rather than just consumed, um, I think be Britain's version of a sovereign wealth fund. And that, if you just take a fraction of that 
and allocate it towards growth companies, <clears throat> then you would be, you know, you would absolutely be changing the uh, the whole landscape. And what's the prospect of, of that happening? Is that something that you're you're working on? I've seen that you've talked about it in a few places. I'm working on talking about it. Right. Yeah. <laughs> so, uh, <laughs> I think you've got to talk about these ideas um, so they've got to land. Yeah. Uh, there was a very significant report this week which was published by the British Business Bank and Oliver Wyman, the consulting firm, which follows a consultation that's been happening in the investment industry generally, which very much reiterates some of the comments that I've been making. It's giving some third-party endorsement to the size of the, the market. I don't think anybody debates that this is a huge pool of savings. The debate is what's the best way to invest it? And currently, um, if you look at it from the standpoint of government, they are very much wearing a consumer hat. This is a big pool of savings and therefore it needs to be saved responsibility, uh, responsibly, which is obviously true. If it's too restrictive, then those savings will never grow to the level they need to be mm. to actually meet people's pension requirements when they get older. And again, I'm a big believer in looking at what other countries in the world have done if you take the endowment funds of the major American universities, so something like Harvard and Yale, mm. they have significantly outperformed many investment institutions around the world because of their investment strategy. So what we're keen to do, and, and certainly um, we're putting our sort of um, views across to all the relevant people, is that these pension funds are given the flexibility to have a broader investment strategy. Not to the point where they are speculating and taking vast risks with people's long-term savings, but where they're allocating a portion of that towards higher growth situations because we believe that will actually increase people's pension pots, and that's what this report said. And presumably you'd want them to use BGF as a conduit for that? Yeah, I think we could be a conduit. We don't have to be the only conduit. Yeah, I think if you step back, um, there's going to need to be somebody who is actually willing and prepared to, to do this and showing that you can invest you know, in a diversified basis in scale, and clearly BGF can do that. I'm sure there are others who are thinking about this. And one of the great strengths of the UK in financial services is innovation. And we have created so many different types of products and services over a very long period of time. So I have no doubt that there is scope for us to create something new. Some of that in terms of its delivery will come through fintech companies. So you've got to make people's pensions exciting. Mm. So you've got to actually be able to deliver it in a way that it's quite graphic and visual and you can see where your company is going. Some of it needs to be technical in terms of regulation, and obviously a core part of it needs to be investment-driven. Where's the capital going to go? So I, I think if we grasp this opportunity, we could actually make a huge difference to the UK at a time when there is a lot of uncertainty. And do you think fundamentally this should remain bounded to national interest? Because the, the, the example out there in the market at the moment, which a lot of people talk about, is uh, obviously SoftBank. And they're getting considerable sums of money from Saudi sovereign wealth funds, etc. And they've simply bloated the size of SoftBank's fund just by sourcing international capital. But in this example, do you think for long-term national interest, it's important that it is linked to a sort of homegrown sovereign wealth fund and not drawing on international um, generosities, as it were? Yeah, I, um, I think that's a, that's a really interesting um, observation. I think SoftBank... SoftBank is clearly trying to blow everybody out of the water just by scale. And it's not working. Um, as well. And there are a lot of views about whether it's working. They're certainly not making a lot of friends in the investment world. Uh, I think from my standpoint, there is nothing wrong. And in fact, I think there is a good thing to be open to foreign direct investment. Mm -hmm. And I think the UK has always succeeded by being open in that sense. And capital is one flow. 
but not to the point where that capital is dictating what your investment strategy is. So in my mind, this should be absolutely a British-led strategy supported by British institutions, British pension funds, but there is no reason why you couldn't have some sovereign wealth funds from overseas as part of that, but they would very much be joining a club rather than driving the club. I think specific with the example that you're highlighting, which is it's attractive to bring in international funding if you're just transacting on it and we we take our service fees. Mm. But I think you're right. It seems like uh, the Business Growth Fund is looking for to create longevity and and successful businesses within the UK, which um, is something that our futurists will thrive on, as you say, right up to the point of people's future pension contributions, etc. And Ireland. Thing. And Ireland. Yeah, and it actually, you know, you get, you've just reminded me of one of the KPIs I had um, <laughs> to set up the business. You say, okay, let's hire the team, build a reputation. What does success look like? And my answer to that was that we're here in 20 years' time. So we're nine years into that, I'm pretty confident we're going to be here in 20 years' time because if you can survive cycles, changes of government, changes of leadership in your shareholders, you must be doing something that actually is sustainable. Well, through some of the toughest times. What about yep. Brexit? Oh. Yeah, I've heard about that. <laughs> um, well, it's all sorted as of, uh, you know, as of recent announcements. I think if you, you have to look at perhaps Brexit in a broader context here. There is a lot going on in the world which is changing very dramatically. Uh, part of this, I think, is as we move more and more towards a service-based economy, uh, we can't live in the past. I mean, Victorian Britain is not going to come back. Victorian Britain had a lot of great entrepreneurs, so that's probably something that we can. A lot of uh, child workers as well, I'm so uh, told. That was one of the ways in which they obviously <laughs> create a lot of wealth, and we're not going to do that. So you've got to have enterprise, and you've got to have profit with purpose. So business has got to be done in a responsible manner. And that is a combination of people with a good idea. And obviously, they can't then exploit others because that's not a sustainable idea. But I think in the context of the the future for Britain, with or without Brexit, it's going to be based on future industries. So what we have to establish, again, depending on whichever way Brexit goes, how do we support all the future industries that are going to drive the wealth of this country? So you take life sciences, which we mentioned. We have a phenomenal position already. We've got some of the leading universities in the world, and Cambridge are probably, if you were to choose a city anywhere in the world to do life sciences, you'd probably go to Cambridge. Mm. So we need to make sure that we continue to have the best academics, we need to have the best undergraduates, and they are properly funded. And then you start to look across the UK, you look at the whole renewable um, industry. Britain is the biggest um, provider of offshore wind in the world. I'm sadly, we don't make the turbines, we don't make the gears, we don't make, we don't make a lot of the parts that go mm. into it, but we are providing the services. So what are we doing to export that and to make this a real center of excellence? Uh, if you look at the long-term demise of fossil fuels, whether that's 30, 40, 50 years, what happens to places like Aberdeen, which is a fantastic place for innovation in oil field services. Can you transfer those innovation skills towards renewables? Uh, we think that, uh, that you can. So the UK has got a lot of clusters of strong sector expertise. Uh, you look at healthcare, what we're doing in genomics in terms of DNA sequencing. I mean, there's a lot of really good things. And the worry with Brexit is that we stop doing those really good things and we start looking inward and not looking outward. And we actually shrink in terms of our ambitions. I think we've got to be very ambitious and we've got to think very globally. And I suppose at the moment, the tragedy of Brexit is that it is so destructive whether you want to leave or remain. Mm. Um, what we see with businesses is they're just trying to get on with what they can influence. And the reason the economy hasn't completely 
fallen over is because business is continuing um, to sort of push forward, but it gets harder. The longer this goes on, the more damaging it is. Um, and Britain is just one country in a global economy, and we don't have a right to automatically remain as the fifth largest economy. So that the worry is that we actually just handicap ourselves in a very competitive world. Mm. And when that two billion was promised to you back in 2011, mm. that was before Brexit, I imagine was even uh, the remotest possibility. Are there any like clause within that that promise for that funding? Are those banks uh, like no, because nobody was smart enough to anticipate that um, like, you'd have something <laughs> like Brexit. Uh, I think they were much more focused on can you actually make a return mm. on that capital? So uh, we have return criteria that we need to meet, which we are meeting, uh, which we will continue to meet. So I think first and foremost, as an investment organization, you've got to be driven by returns. Brexit adds in a completely new dynamic. Is that going to make it harder for the UK to grow? And, and potentially it is, which is why the outcome of this really um, does matter. But the one thing I suppose history tells us is that there are always going to be changes. And the great thing about entrepreneurs is they're good at taking advantage of disruption. Adversity. So yeah. we would not, BGF wouldn't be here were it not for the great financial crash. That, that was Armageddon almost when the banking system collapsed. What we're talking about now is not the banking system collapsing. We're talking really about something which is much broader in terms of international trade and how businesses and countries work together. So it's not going to be as cataclysmic as that. It could be very damaging in the short term, which again is why we need uh, we need a deal. Mm. And with BGF's aspirations for our companies, what's what what's the desired outcome for? for acquisitions of businesses that have gone through um, a good period of sustained growth with you because we had somebody who um, worked extensively in this Swedish startup ecosystem and a lot of their focus is immediately global because the domestic market is not big enough. Now within the UK we have a reasonably decent sized domestic market but do you live in hope that a lot of these companies could be let's say sold to American entities so that we're actually onshoring capital via sales of these businesses and, and really are getting your business to stand up on a kind of global platform or is it enough to have you know good healthy exits and recycling capital within the UK? Uh, there's nothing wrong with exits if that's what the entrepreneurs want. I would hope that we can create some businesses here that don't need to be sold. Uh, I mean it's if you think about Britain as a business model hmm. it doesn't feel the most compelling business model just to take all the early stage risk the innovation build something up and then sell it. I mean, why would we do that? It's almost um, we're an incubator on a grand scale for um, American tech giants or big uh, global conglomerates. So that's not to say we shouldn't sell some things, but I don't think our business model should be based on that alone. What we have yet to do is to demonstrate that we can create true new global businesses. Mm. We've obviously done that historically. You think of the pharmaceutical sectors like Glaxo or the aerospace sector um, with companies like Rolls-Royce. Where are the new modern global champions that we're building and I think that's what we should be aspiring to so if you look at the fangs they're not British uh, they're not anything other than American uh, why not and why can't we so if you take Netflix obviously a fantastic company uh, it's creating content um, English is the predominant language in the world we're brilliant at creating content in the BBC we've got one of the, the world's greatest broadcasters but why don't we have a Netflix and I think that's what we should be partially measuring our success by it's not all about creating the next Google but we certainly should have aspirations to create some new industrial and commercial and intellectually driven companies for the future rather than selling them and going back to your point about SoftBank um, Arm is a great company um, Arm is now part of the, the sort of SoftBank empire 
uh, they clearly made a very good return for their investors. I wonder in the long term whether we would wish that Arm was still based here. So what's going to happen to innovation and investment and R&D in that company in 10 years' time? Yeah, because they cited the example of, of Ericsson or IKEA and a lot of people in Sweden either working for those or working on, on, on starting their own thing. But actually they did have, um, as you said, a lot of kind of global companies that were aspirational for people to work for and, and gave them real opportunities. Um, and yeah, it does seem we are lacking in those other than, you know, it's yet to be seen whether sort of the funding circles and stuff like this will meaningfully expand outside of the UK, but it's got to be more than just fintech companies as well, I feel. Yeah, no, I, I think you're all right. I mean, one of the reasons we've done well in financial services historically is because we have a, a, a very sophisticated regulatory system here, uh, which you need. So London was the first place in the world to trade renminbi. Uh, and why did the Chinese pick London? Because London's got more foreign exchange trading than any other part of the world. So we can capitalize on that, but we can't just rely on fintech and we can't just rely on financial services. So pharmaceuticals is an area clearly very global. We have a good position, as is aerospace. But the new industries um, are still very much in their infancy in terms of global leadership. That's where we need to be focusing. And the, the government is making some good steps in that direction which is to increase our commitment um, as a nation in terms of spending on R&D. Currently, we spend 1.7% of our GDP on R&D. The G7 average is 2.4, so we're clearly a laggard. The government is committed to get to 2.4. Uh, I suppose the question is, why get to where the rest are? Why not get ahead of them? But mm -hmm. at least it's a step in the right um, direction. We Again, we've got some great scientific um, institutions here, research councils. I, I don't think Britain actually is competitively disadvantaged. Maybe Britain is not sufficiently ambitious. Do you see uh, within the, your, your future portfolio a lot of those companies being uh, deep tech, scientific companies rather than the more, I don't, know, I don't want to say simple, but... But there is a distinction between businesses that are driven on science and breakthroughs and outlier returns. We are not structured just to invest in those because that's a very high level of, of risk and if it was easier, I guess everybody else would be doing it. We absolutely want to support some of those companies and I think we can be a catalyst there. We have the physical infrastructure and the investment capability to invest a wide range of different companies. What I would hope is that we can be a catalyst to bring other capital in because there is a lot of investment well, there are huge pools of capital around the world that have capital, but not the ability to deploy it. So which is why everybody's always chasing um, good ideas. So going back to investments in science in the UK, you've got different pools of capital. You've got the government effectively through something called Innovate UK, which is the arm that invests in deep science, um, providing grant funding. Who comes after Innovate? there is a gap there. Mm -hmm. um, that's something I think BGF is definitely keen to get involved in, but we're not going to do it all on our own. But could we be effectively the engine to get other people to say, all right, well, if you can build us a diversified portfolio of, of scientific investment, so we're not just betting on one or two, then as an investment strategy, that makes sense. So we definitely want to do more, but I think we're realistic that to do more, we need to have a broader pool of capital that has a risk appetite to do more. And I think Historically, the venture capital industry has been relatively small, so small funds, 30, 40 million, and they are all looking for the same thing, which is one sort of 10 or 20 times return to justify all the investments that don't work. That works on a small fund for the venture capital industry. That will not work for the investment industry because it's too risky. Mm. And you've seen some of the recent challenges that uh, the Woodford funds have faced 
you've got a few small, very large, concentrated and illiquid investments, and that, that they're not easy, and they're clearly not easy to liquidate quickly. Well, and it, there is an inherent problem with high specification technology that we experience, which is, oh, you can't expect the angels to understand the technology often. So they'll come from a banking background or a financial services background where they have spare capital incentivized by tax schemes to mm -hmm. invest and presented with you know very high level technology spin outs of universities. I don't, there's no way for them to do technical due diligence. Whereas it would be quite reassuring if a fund on behalf of, of you know the next step from Innovate UK does that and people can start to get confidence from the sort of process that they're going through to understand the technology and be invested in that space. Yeah, I think that's a that's a really uh, insightful sort of comment. I agree with you. If I, if you look at most private investors, uh, they they probably fall into two camps: those that will stick to an industry they know really well, which is where they made their wealth, or it will just be a little bit of um, serendipity. I met somebody in the pub. A mate of mine's invested in this. Why don't you invest in this? That isn't an investment strategy. That's sort of uh, you know pot luck. Um, where there is, a, I think, a role for the private banks in the UK and the wealth managers is to come up with essentially a fund of fund type product to give diversified exposure. Because I think if you could go to private clients who are investing through EIS and somebody's going to invest £100,000, you can either invest £100,000 in two or three companies that you picked, or you could invest it in 20 companies that somebody else is managing and you've got a big pool. I think that is that is a really interesting direction of travel because I think it meets the needs of private clients to have diversification. Uh, it creates a genuinely long-term pool of capital because private clients are permanent. I mean, until they obviously are not here, mm. they've got longer-term um, horizons. I also think it addresses another interesting point, which is a, a much more um, emotive element which is having a stake in society and if there if you look at some of the sort of get back to brexit some of the um the underlying drivers for that people feel that society is unfair it's divided into people at the top who've got a lot and then everybody else we need to make sure that everybody realizes they do have a stake and you have a stake through your savings but at the moment that's all very opaque and i think there is definitely scope to do that so bringing in private clients in a more managed fashion is something that we can do. And if you go back in history, we have done. So we created investment trusts in the 19th century, which is a large pool, diversified, quoted vehicle. Mm. We've got about five minutes until we're unceremoniously turfed out. So do you want to do the, the quick fire? Yes, absolutely. Um, so just a couple of quick questions now. Uh, we'd just like to ask you first uh, for a prediction for the future. Uh, I think the British economy is actually going to be more diversified, more dynamic and better positioned there in the next 50 years than it has been in the last 50 years. And that's not just rhetoric? No, I genuinely, partly because if you look at what we were based on in the last 50 years, those industries are going away. So if, uh, we have to, um, otherwise, otherwise you will have serious <laughs> problems. So uh, the industries of the future are up for grabs. And I think providing we focus our attentions on that, we could do really well. And if, if to give a specific you go back to um, genomics and you look at the National Health Service. Nobody else in the world has a National Health Service. We're not mm. going to get rid of the National Health Service. That is an amazing institution in terms of the healthcare provides. It's also an amazing investment opportunity. But, so if we get behind things like that, we would be in a phenomenal position. So I, I do genuinely think Britain could be a stronger economy going forward because the economies of the 21st century are going to be knowledge-based, they're not going to be industrially-based. So that, that's why I would be confident, but like most predictions, 
it will very much depend on what you do about it. Mm. It won't happen by itself. Yeah. Well, as you say with the NHS, it's a fantastic tool for gathering huge amounts of patient data mm. in one place, which now we can manage that data is actually a highly effective way to, to manage further developments and innovations within that, that ecosystem. Second question is, do you have a startup book or resource that you, uh, you would recommend, or any book at all, actually? Or, yeah, business rather than... Yeah. yeah. Um, I'm not going to give you a specific book. I'll tell you what, uh, what I find increasingly useful, which is the power of data. So I w my strong advice to people is just read a lot um, around the subject that you are actually reviewing. So if you take a very simple thing like the newspaper, I used to read one newspaper a day, now I read four. Mm. Um, and I'm often reading the same articles or the same content, but uh, written from a very different standpoint. And that creates curiosity. It also gives you perspective. Uh, I think with a lot of businesses, they become very one-dimensional. I have a plan, and this is my plan. Other people may have a plan which could impact on that. So read broadly, always be questioning. And you know, as a very simple thing, whenever we have investment committees, I'm always looking on the internet as people are talking about, well, you've talked about this competitor, what are they doing? Do you, do you really think they're doing what you think they were doing? And that sort of questioning mind. So books are part of that, information is part of that, meeting lots of people is a part of that. So I would say be very curious and always be questioning. And the best entrepreneurs I've met are sort of vaguely paranoid because they think somebody's got a better mousetrap and is just about to be launched. How long does it take you to read four newspapers a day? Uh, I'm a speed reader. Okay. <laughs> so uh, there is a very, I can't remember the name of this entrepreneur. It was a chap at school and he was about 15 or 16. He worked out that most newspapers have a headline, a first paragraph, then they repeat everything and then they have a conclusion. Yeah. So if you read the headline, the first paragraph, and the conclusion, you probably covered 80% uh, of what's in there. Top tip. And which four papers are they, given that we're in the Daily Mail building? <laughs> uh, we're in the Daily Mail building. It's not the Daily Mail. Sorry, sorry about that. Uh, it would be the Financial Times, which is where I started, the Times, the Telegraph, and the Guardian. And then uh, the Economist, but that's obviously a periodical. I think you may have nailed the, the best advice that we could be given. Um, best advice you've ever received? It's very simple. Hire good people. Uh, that's, that's great advice. It's harder to execute. But if I go back to when I started as one person, I mean, one person can do so much. 180 people can do a lot more. And I asked somebody who had been very successful in business in all sorts of different um, realms. And that's what he said to me. And it is blindingly obvious. Because my question to him is, well, how can you possibly have done all of these different things? And he just said, well, how are good people? So I think that, that is finding them making sure they're the right people for your business, making sure they're onboarded properly, that they share your goals and objectives is all key. But there is no doubt good people is what makes great businesses. And then finally, from either a BGF perspective or a Stephen Melton perspective, mm -hmm. is there anything that you'd like to ask our listeners? Uh, I'd like them to be, be honest in terms of why you are in business, what your motivation is. There, I think especially with uh, the next generation of founders, and one of the reasons I'm optimistic about the future is that we've never had more startups, we've never had more people wanting to set up their own, uh, their own businesses. Um, I also meet many people for whom it didn't quite work out the way that they, that they thought. So I suppose the question is, if you are going to set up in your own business or get involved in an early stage company, do you really want to be doing that? And what is your motivation? Because the key thing, which I think transcends age, um, is a passion for what you're doing. So uh, my question would be, are you really passionate? And then are you able to be very objective about your passion? Because is it just a great idea that will never really develop? Or is it a great idea which, with hard work, you can make into a really interesting business? 
Stephen, it's been a great deal of fun. Thank yeah, you for coming yeah, on. Pleasure. pleasure. Very nice to talk to you both. Thank you, Stephen. If you enjoyed this or any of our other conversations, we'd love to get your feedback. Our Twitter handle is at the startup Mike, M-I-C, or get us an email, audiored at startupmicrodose.com. If you're feeling particularly generous of spirit, a review on iTunes would go a long way to ensuring that we can continue to bring you these conversations. Finally, this recording could not have happened without the support of Founders Factory backed Entail. Their podcasting software and studio in the Daily Mail building, London, are as ever the unassuming stars of our show. Check out entail.co. And thank you for listening. Goodbye.